0: Hello, and welcome to the Portfolio Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, John Bryson, Head of Investment Consulting and Education Savings at John Hancock Investment Management. Today is February 6, 2023, and I've invited Emily Rowland and Matt Miskin, our Co-Chief Investment Strategist here at John Hancock Investment Management, to our podcast. As a reminder, Matt and Emily are the architects behind our quarterly capital markets outlook piece titled Market Intelligence. Matt, Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, Matt, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Last week, we had our first FOMC meeting of the year. Can you walk us through uh, what happened and what's the latest with the Fed?
1: Yeah, so the Fed raised rates uh, 0.25%, as expected. You know, this was pretty well telegraphed at this point. In terms of what Powell sees from here, he said several potential rate hikes, uh, ongoing rate hikes. The job of fighting inflation is not done. But he did say disinflation a good amount. Uh, so he, you know, while the absolute level of inflation is still elevated, they have been seeing the trend de- you know, decelerate here. And, and that disinflationary comment from Powell, uh, sparked a bit of a risk on rally across markets. In addition, Powell really didn't push back on uh, what has been asked or talked about financial conditions. So. Financial conditions are things like the dollar, high yield spreads, interest rates, and they've eased a lot in the last three to four months. They had been tightening, and now they're easing. And he really said, still they were very tight, and the market, you know, kind of said, "Look, if you think they're tight, even though they've eased, that's a dovish view of that." And and markets also rallied on that. So he's actually speaking again uh, tomorrow. There might be a bit of a. Uh, walk back in some of his comments, a little more hawkish. At the end of the day, though, it doesn't really change to us the trajectory much. And the bond market is still pricing in. And one or two rate hikes in the first half uh, to kind of conclude the rate hiking cycle and then on pause and then cuts by the end of the year. And that's still kind of the trajectory. The data has been mixed. It's all over the place. And that's really what's going to influence the Fed from here but in, firms, in, in terms of kind of our first hurdle of the Fed and, and the first Fed meeting of the year, we've gotten through it. It's still a bit choppy, um, but the trajectory hasn't changed that much,
0: all things considered. Okay. So, Emily, Matt had said the, the fact that the Fed raised by 25 basis points wasn't a big surprise. It was forecast. But uh, what was a big surprise uh, was the jobs report. Can you talk about it and its impact?
2: Yeah, so massive upside surprise on the January jobs report. We saw payroll gains coming in at 517,000, well above the estimate for 185,000. We also saw um, big revisions to the prior two months, to the tune of 71,000 jobs. So just, you know, absolute blowout report. You know, we do want to be mindful of, of overemphasizing one report, especially this one. There's some odd sort of seasonal patterns that that happen in January. There was also some adjustments to um, so some calculations that the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, made around the, the population survey. So we want to be mindful that the data could potentially have been sort of a little wonky or distorted because of that, but still a very hot jobs report. And it does complicate the Fed's job. So Matt talked about the mentions that that Powell made on on disinflation and that being a bit of a sort of, you know, dovish approach. And then, it, you know, two days later, here you go. There's this this jobs report that indicates that, you know, the labor market's incredibly tight, you know, unemployment at three point four percent. That's the lowest level in almost 60 years. Um, you know, really uh, wage pressures. You know, cooling a little bit, but remaining really elevated at four and a half percent, almost on a year-over-year basis. So wage growth, of course, being a key element of inflation, uh, and the Fed's goal here is to 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 temper that. So it's making things a bit more complicated. There were some things um, in here that the Fed was probably pretty happy with. The participation rate is one. So more people are re-entering the workforce that ticked up a little bit and when more people are looking for work of course that can help bring down wage growth bring down inflation so that was certainly something that that the fed probably liked but you know in terms of the market reaction it was definitely a a good news as bad news one so in other words the tighter the labor market it really sort of decreases the likelihood that the fed can pause here um, sooner uh, rather than lower uh, later. So we saw, you know, stocks lower, bond yields higher, um, a stronger dollar, which is something that Matt and I have really been pointing out as one of the key dynamics that's been um, sort of responsible for a lot of the cross asset performance. And and we'll talk about this, but the weaker dollar over the really starting in the fourth quarter into this year has really been supportive of of the rally in risk assets and a stronger dollar is basically the opposite of that. So I think that was a notable element of the market reaction there. Um, And then happy to talk about sort of investment implications, but we may get to that um, shortly.
0: Yeah, definitely will. So Matt, it's interesting, Emily said twice, um, the data is complicating matters. I think the other thing that's complicating matters is the fact that we're about halfway through earnings season, and it might not jive with a risk-on environment. So how's earnings season been going?
1: Yeah, it's it's holding in okay. But then when you look at relative to the last several years, and, and even you strip out COVID, and you just kind of think about how typically earnings come in, it's, it's frankly not great. Um, last week, for example, you got the biggest market capitalization companies in the world, some of those big tech stocks, reporting earnings and, and most missed estimates. Um, you know, some are are now doing buybacks. There's a big buyback revival right now, which is helping, in essence, the, the market's response. And, you know, the thought being, if you take away share count, uh, that can help mitigate kind of the earnings downside. But we are tracking about 2.5% earnings estimates uh, growth. For 2023, we were at five uh, just to start the year. So there's been a decrease in earnings revisions in 2023. Uh, what we're seeing in terms of, you know, what the the leadership is, some of the cyclical sides, you know, of the market um, like financials, consumer discretionary uh, had really high estimates. Uh, they their earnings in Q4 weren't weren't great, so they need to really come up with a recovery uh, to meet these high the higher bar. Um, The market has rallied as earnings estimates have gone down. So now we're looking at over an 18 times forward price to earnings ratio, which is pretty elevated versus history. Um, So when we put this all together, it's a tough backdrop, frankly, fundamentally. And we're trying to look for companies that have better balance sheets because if they need cost of capital to survive or they need capital to survive, the cost of capital is too much right now. Um, we're looking for companies that aren't overly expensive, trying to to mitigate valuation risk by not looking at the most expensive parts of the market. Um, and, you know, for us, it's, it's kind of looking, leaning on certain factors in the markets and, and from a bottom-up basis, looking for those that, you know, strategies that have a process uh, where quality and value are two key tenants to navigate this challenging
0: earnings backdrop. So, Emily, I'm going to complicate it a little bit further and then ask both you and Matt to kind of pull it together for us. But one more complicating factor I'm going to throw out there is the U.S.-China relations and its impact on globalization trends. What are you seeing there?
2: Yeah, so definitely switching gears a bit here. But, you know, there has been some developments as of late that have really, you know, shown a spotlight um, in the challenges we've seen to US-China relations. And I'll I'll start by saying that, you know, we rely on a network of political strategists um, to help inform our, our thinking here. And it's it's really difficult to make, you know, sort of immediate investment conclusions based on this, but there are some longer-term trends in place, and one of those is deglobalization. Um, You know, we've seen, you know, over the past number of decades, we've seen globalization really taking hold, you know, U.S. businesses creating consumers outside of the U.S., um, moving supply chains. And we've seen policies start to move in the other direction here as geopolitical risks increase. So what we're seeing is this recognition from a lot of you know, CEOs, you know, and not only is it here, it's in other parts of the world, you know, realizing that they don't want to be overly reliant on on global supply chains. And there's a recognition in the US that if you're gonna you know sell it here, you're gonna increasingly be, be making it in the US. And we're seeing that reflected in you know, back to tying it to earnings, earnings calls, we're hearing over and over these words of onshoring and reshoring. Um again, bringing supply chains back here. And Matt and I are, are frequently on the road. And I think we can see it. You know, middle America, I think, is fertile ground for this sort of new industrial revolution that's happening uh, in the US. And, and we look to to think about this more secular trend and, and how it benefits uh companies in the in the middle America, you know, part of the country, as well as mid-cap equities, which have overweights to areas like industrials, materials, think sort of you know, building, construction, trucking, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure spending going on here as those supply chains relocate. So that's the way we're thinking about kind of this longer term trend around potential deglobalization.
0: That's really helpful. Maybe now I'll ask because we've hit a couple of different topics between the Fed, the economic data, uh, earnings season, etc., Emily, how are you talking to clients about pulling it all together and how they should be, be positioning their portfolios as we're uh, one month in into 2023? And then Matt, I'll ask you to kind of comment anything else you'd add to that story.
2: Yeah, I think Matt did a, a great job of of highlighting how tricky you know this backdrop is because on one hand we're getting evidence that you know not we're not in a recession. You know, I think it's tough to say with the unemployment rate. At the lowest level in 60 years that that we're in a recession, but the other economic data that we watch really closely things like the leading economic indicators at negative 6% year over year, the yield curve, you know, inverted to the tune of almost 80 basis points, you know, the PMIs, uh, which is purchasing managers indices a really timely read on the health of an underlying economy suggesting that we're we're in contraction here um, and that economic growth is decelerating across the globe. Um, but you're getting this again, this choppiness in economic data, which makes it tricky. And we're seeing a sort of mismatch between what we would expect in terms of cross asset performance, given those leading indicators, the yield curve, the PMIs would be a risk off period. But we're seeing this kind of um really very cyclically oriented risk on move in the markets as investors sort of, you know, celebrate, for lack of a better word, the they, you know, slow down in inflation, which has been one of the biggest, you know, enemies to the market um, over the past year or so. So we're advising investors to be careful! It is incredibly easy to get whipsawed in this type of environment. We don't want to be, you know, reaching for returns in the riskier corners of the market. And as Matt mentioned, we continue to suggest that investors, you know, increase quality, emphasize value, look to more defensive equities. And frankly, we continue to see the income on high-quality bonds is really extremely competitive versus other options. Uh, given our analysis, which suggests that a recession does uh, likely unfold later in 2023,
0: excellent, Matt. What would you add? I know you're you're cautious by nature uh, and a long-term investor, uh, but what would you add to Emily's comments? Yeah, you
1: know, I think on the fixed income side, it's it is also challenging. I mean, we, we keep having the 10-year Treasury yield kind of back up or hit around 3.40 percent, and then bouncing. You know, it, it feels like it's about to break down, and now we're we're almost at 3.6 this morning. So we're kind of in this, this trading and choppy range even for, for Treasury yields, which is then influencing broader bond markets. But we would be patient and look for high-quality yields here today. Um, the last couple rate hikes are of the Fed, the usually the scenario is that the 10-year Treasury yield peaks out before the Fed funds rate peaks out. Uh, within months of it. So if, if the Fed funds rate is going to be peaking in terms of its cycle high in the next several months, usually the 10-year Treasury yield is peaking you know, several months before that, so where we are now. Um, in addition, in recessions, the average decline over the last three recessions of the 10-year Treasury yield is 2.65%, and the average amount of Fed cuts is 4.25%. So what we want to do is make sure we don't miss that duration tailwind meaning interest rates falling into a recession um because if you miss that then you can't lock in or you can't basically move into that duration in and get that longer maturity and we're looking at seven to ten year maturity type uh fixed income options in the higher quality profile because we want that not just for next year, the year after that, the year after that, and the year after that. And what we're looking at is you know about five to six percent in high quality income. Uh, we think that's going to be really competitive longer term. Um, and so you know again to Emily's comments, not getting whipsawed here, making sure you're you're thinking about the next phase of the cycle. And uh, in bonds right now, we think the return potential is actually really attractive. Um, given what we see unfolding in leading economic indicators.
0: Folks, it's a fluid market out there. There's always new data being uh, put forth, but Matt and Emily are both all over it. Uh, They are producing more and more insights on a regular basis. If you're not, you should follow them on LinkedIn or on Twitter to get their latest. And if you wanna hear more from us, please subscribe to the Portfolio Intelligence podcast on iTunes. Or visit our website, jhinvestments.com, to read our viewpoints on macro trends, portfolio construction techniques, business building ideas, and much, much more. Matt, Emily, thank you. And to the audience, thanks so much for listening to the show. Investment Management Distributors, LLC. Member FINRA, SIPC. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker, are subject to change as market and other conditions warrant and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment strategy discussed will be successful or achieve any particular level of results. Any economic or market performance information is historical and is not indicative of future results and no forecasts are guaranteed. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.